Well, we're in Acts, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9. We've made our way as far as verse 43, where we'll pick it up this morning, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And in verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For, he is, for who he is least among you, uh, all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went into and entered the village of of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, Well, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those of my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is now making his way from the area of Galilee to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And along the way, we are discovering that the disciples aren't quite there yet. They have half the picture. But they are not ready yet to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ into all of the world. They don't fully understand and comprehend all that is taking place. 
And it is revealed to us as we are making our way on this journey with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem that many of these deficiencies within the life of the disciples are now being manifest through what we are reading together this morning. And as we are now moving through our text, we start in verse 43 quickly. The crowd is astonished due to the incredible event of the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit that we looked at last week together. But while they were marveling at it, he then turned to his disciples and said, in all essence, even though this was so great, please understand that I need to go and the Son of Man is about to be uh, delivered into the hands of men. Meaning that once I get to Jerusalem, I will not be established as king, as many of them were hoping and wishing for, but yet I'm going to be arrested I'm going to be taken into custody. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be found guilty. And eventually I'm going to be executed wrongly for a crime that I had not committed. That's all encompassed in the word delivered here. Yet it appears that the disciples either were not yet ready to hear, understand, and comprehend what Jesus was saying... Or some scholars believe that they would have rebelled and revolted at this time trying to keep Jesus from entering into Jerusalem as, of course, we saw Peter in the other Gospels when he said that when Jesus said to him, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over. And Peter said, no, not at all. You can't go, Lord. You can't do that. And, of course, Jesus answered and said, get ye behind me, Satan, because this was the will of the Father for the life of Jesus yet still concealed the entire picture and the entire plan of God to the disciples, they were afraid to ask about what he had just said. And yet perceiving that something significant was going to happen there in Jerusalem, they began to argue amongst themselves, who will be the greatest? Meaning, in your kingdom, Lord, which of the twelve of us will be the greatest one of all? Will it be me? Will it be me? Will it be me? And Jesus uses a child. A child in that culture was really an afterthought to the, to the society. They did not hold a place of prominence and, and uh, prestige in that culture. And as a result, Jesus likens the one who will be the greatest to that of the child. Saying to them, if you receive me, you will receive my father. One who receives me as a child receives me. One who follows me as a child would follow me in the simplicity of their faith would be the greatest of all, he is saying here. John then saw that others were casting out demons that weren't part of the twelve. And in that culture, it was inappropriate to take the teaching of a teacher that you were not a disciple of and independently uh, proceed upon that teaching and teach others those principles. And so John thought he was justified by saying, should we stop them, Lord? But Jesus knew that the kingdom of God was going to be bigger than just these twelve. And Jesus told John that if they are not against you, they are for you. When coming to Samaria, one of the last areas before Jerusalem, the Samaritans rejected those who preceded Christ due to the fact that they felt slighted 
because Jesus would not worship there on Mount Gizim, but was proceeding and making his way to Jerusalem to worship there, stating a, a, a illustration of precedence that the Jews were superior to the Samaritans, undoubtedly. And of course, John, who, by the way, in the Gospel of John, is known as the disciple in whom Jesus loves, he is known for his articulation of the love of God throughout the Gospel of John, and here demonstrates that overwhelming agape love by saying, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? See, even John was a work in progress, wasn't he? He had a long way to go. And he felt that this slight of Jesus was uh, worth condemning by the judgment of God, and yet Jesus rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Which leads us to our text that I want to focus on this morning, because within the deficiencies that we see within the disciples throughout verses 43 here through verse 56, I believe that the elements that Jesus pulls out in the next set of verses really define the commitment that God is looking for from a Christian in the relationship with Him as we follow Jesus Christ. Today, the aspect of commitment is one of those that, if pushed to be defined, would be very uh, vague and would be smothered in ambiguity. What constitutes commitment today? We have written contracts that would define and constitute commitment, but also outline in detail the um, expected um, you know, demands upon each party who signed the contract, and both parties are then committing to fill that. However, though, here in the United States, we are finding that even contracts that seem so legally binding can be argued through our court system and circumvented due to the amount of money that corporations have to overwhelm the one in whom they are trying to break the contract with. When we talk about personal relationships, I don't believe a stronger uh, example of commitment can be demonstrated anywhere than in the relationship of marriage. However, though, we find now in our culture that an individual who is coming to a place and committing themselves to another often have not considered the defining points or the foundation of the commitment in which they are making to the other person. Often, selfish uh, desires are driving the commitment. I'm committing myself to you if you do this for me. I'm committing myself to you because uh, of emotional feelings that I have for you here at this moment, which later on can easily be lost and no longer felt. And so when it comes to the aspect of commitment making a commitment to something. We need to count the cost of that commitment. We need to know what that commitment is going to cost us. And as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, there is still the complexity of the understanding of who he is. 
And as he is making his way to Jerusalem, many are trying to attach themselves to him, literally trying to ride his coattails into places of power and prestige and prominence within the society. If he's truly the Messiah that we have expected, then yes, I will come and follow you in hopes of one day obtaining a place of power, a place of prestige, and a place of prominence within the culture. Well, how do we know this? Well, the disciples are already arguing about this. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right hand, etc.? So as Jesus is making his way, we find in verses 57 through 62 that there are three people that approach Jesus. And he uses the approach of these three people to define the commitment that he is seeking from those who will follow him. He is laying down for us what it means to commit yourself to Jesus Christ. If we are going to call ourselves a Christian, let us know and understand from the very beginning that that call upon our life, that that claim that we are making and proclaiming to others is going to cost us something. It is not free of charge. Yes, salvation is free. The salvation that we uh, obtain through faith, uh, grace and faith in Jesus Christ is free. But it's going to cost you the rest of your life. The words that Paul uses to describe the relationship that we have entered into is that we have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not simple things as silver and gold, etc., but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we are no longer our own. Paul himself said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. We are entering into a relationship that is defined by a word in the Bible such as bondservant. It is the English word that is used to describe the Greek word doulos. The Greek word doulos in that culture would be better suited being described by the word slave. A slave to who? Christ. And so those who want to attach themselves to Jesus those who want to follow him, he is now asking them to count the cost. The cost can be summarized in three, in three ways. The first pillar of the cost of discipleship is sacrifice, number one. Sacrifice. The second cost of discipleship is obedience, number two. And the third cost of discipleship is priority, or I better find the word preeminent to be more uh, uh, appropriate to our discussion this morning. And I believe that in each of these three cases, Jesus demonstrates this for them so that they truly understand the cost of what it means to follow him. For you and I this morning, we are now going to be personally challenged. Are we willing to sacrifice for our commitment to Jesus Christ? Are we willing to be obedient to Jesus Christ in our commitment to Jesus Christ? And number three, are we willing to make Him the priority or allow Him to reign from a position of preeminence within our life, which Paul articulated in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Many Christians in America, I don't know if they ever considered 
the cost of their following Jesus Christ. That they have created a relationship with God based upon their own personal wants and desires. Many treat God as a mere supplement. And I use that word because I often describe it as an individual standing before their medicine chest in their bathroom. And let me ask you, are you guys one of those people that when you're at someone else's house, you look in their medicine chest? You know, I believe that when you get to heaven, God's going to hold you accountable for that. I really do. But I often believe that people look to Jesus as a simple supplement. I'm having a good day, so I don't think I really uh, need to worry or spend much time with the Lord. Things are going well. Things are going good. I'm just going to go on my way. And then, of course, we know that the bottom falls out often. And that's when we run to that medicine cabinet. We grab our Bibles as we would grab a, a, a jar of pills and we pop a couple. We read a few verses and say, Lord, make me feel better. But see, God doesn't work that way, guys. Oh, He can encourage you through, your wor- through His Word in your times of difficulty and trouble. Don't get me wrong. And there's certainly nothing wrong with running to God in your times of need to find grace and help at those moments. But what Jesus is looking for is an abiding relationship with you. He doesn't only want to spend time with you when things are just falling apart. He wants to spend time with you all the time. And when you spend time with Him, apart from those moments of your life when you're in the valley and your things are falling apart, when you do spend time with Him on the mountaintops, you know what you're doing? You're preparing yourself. You're shoring things up. You're getting ready. You know, I love roller coasters. I did all the way up until just recently, and then I realized that I don't think God wants me on roller coasters anymore. But let's be honest. When you, they, uh, most roller coasters are designed the same way, where you get on, and you know the very first thing that they put in front of you is the long climb up, Right? And you're sitting there in the car, and if you're like me, you either want the first one or the last one, okay? One of the best experiences I ever had was in Great America when they turned the eagle, I don't even know if it's around anymore, the American eagle around so you went backwards. That was awesome. Uh, But, you know, the very first thing that you see is this huge incline before you, and your cart starts rolling up and just vibrating, and all of a sudden, and it's pulling you up to the top. And as you are getting up to the top, all you can do is anticipate the drop on the other side, right? And I think that it somewhat prepares you. You know that if you go up so far, you're going to have to come down so far, don't you? Now, I think if I was going to design a roller coaster, I would have it immediately enter into a dark tunnel and then just fly down immediately. Because then you're not anticipating it. You're not expecting it. You don't know which way to go next. If you've ever been on one of those roller coasters where you can't see what's coming ahead of you, those are the ones that you just really can't prepare yourself for. But see, God wants to prepare you for those valleys that you will experience. And in those times of mountaintop experiences, you will have and gain a confidence that the Lord is with you and that He'll never forsake you.
And so therefore, when you do hit the bottom of those valleys, you're not unprepared. You're prepared and said, Lord, even though my circumstances have changed, you have not. And so, as God is preparing the disciples beforehand by articulating the commitment that is needed to follow Him through sacrifice, obedience, and priority, He is establishing that they are probably yet not ready to follow Him because they have not counted the cost of doing so. Verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him. Now it is interesting that a road was a, of course, heavily traveled area. It was very common for people to line up on either side of the road to see who was traveling the road. Undoubtedly, individuals had heard that Jesus was coming their way and waiting for him to see if they could catch a glimpse of him or talk to him, etc. Undoubtedly, it was swirling. The gospel writers tell us that the identity of Jesus was swirling in the hearts and the minds of the people, and many, many, many considered him to be the Messiah. And that was manifested by their greeting of him in Jerusalem with the palm branches before him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, our salvation is here. So as he is walking upon this road, at this moment in time, only Jesus knows where that road is heading. Only Jesus knows what lies ahead at the end of that road, Jerusalem. And it's not going to be the coronation of a king that he will experience, but the crucifixion on the cross that awaits for him. And so the first person who addresses him, notice what he says. I will follow you wherever you go. Oh, really? You don't have any idea where I'm going. You assume most likely that I'm going to be, again, ordained as king there in Jerusalem. And you will gain a place of prestige being one of my followers. You are not prepared. And Jesus answers him in a proverbial manner. But before we get to that, let us be honest. One of the reasons that God has given us his word is that so that we may know where the road ends. Unlike them who had a very small frame of understanding of what God was doing in and through that moment and in and through Christ, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, given the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we know how it all begins and what else do we know? How it all ends, right? And who wins in the end? Why then do we walk so defeated as Christians? Unlike this man who wants to attach himself to Jesus, we've been given the privilege of knowing the beginning from the end. Jesus said before his crucifixion in his night of prayer, he said to his disciples afterwards, no longer do I call you my disciples, but I call you my friends. And all things that the Father has revealed to me, I now reveal to you. So when I get discouraged, you know what I do? I go to the end of the book and remind myself that One day I will be in eternity with the Lord. 
one day I will be clothed with a, a, a body not made by hands, but by the Lord, a, a new glorified state. One day I will occupy the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Reminding myself that whatever I'm experiencing here at this moment that maybe appears so devastating that this is truly the worst it's going to get. It's only going to get better from here. But this, this man, who Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew tells us, is a scribe who is a very intellectual, educated person at that time, says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus then replies in a proverbial state, that means a state of a proverb, and many scholars get hung up on the origin of the, pro, the proverb rather than what Jesus is actually saying to this man. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, what does he mean by that? When a Jewish man attached himself to a teacher there in Jerusalem or in Israel, part of the discipleship process was the teacher would then move that student into his home with him. So the student could not only observe his teacher when he was out in public, but could also learn from that teacher when he was home with him in private. And many of the teachers of Israel and of, of course, Jerusalem were very prominent men and very wealthy. And so being asked into their home was a privilege. And Jesus says, really, you're going to follow me. Well, it's not going to be the life of prestige that you may think that it's going to be. I don't have a home for you to move into. I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you willing to sacrifice all on my behalf? Are you willing to become as one who is homeless within this society? A homeless individual in the society of Judaism was seen as an outcast. And let me explain to you why. They were seen as one who has been rejected, not only by the society itself, but also by God. For many Jewish teachers at that time believed that the covenant that God made with Israel in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, which was a national covenant where God says, if you obey me, I will nationally bless you. If you disobey me, I will nationally curse you. What happened was is that they took it from a national application to an individual application. So someone who was homeless and poor, oh, well, they had to have done something wrong. They had to have offended God in some incredible way. They had to do something, and this is God's correction of them. Because obviously, if they were right with God they would not be in the situation that they find themselves. This is what confused the disciples when it came to the rich young ruler. And they asked, well then, if he can't be saved, who could be? See, they believed that his riches indicated that he had favor with God apart from others. Significant favor, greater favor than anyone else. And Jesus is saying, not so. For it's harder for a a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so this scribe is looked at by Jesus. He says, I have no home. Your life of following me will be a life of sacrifice. 
It will be a life of one who is homeless. And there will be physical discomfort. There will be isolation. There will be rejection. Are you still willing to follow me? And as one wrote, he said, a disciple of Jesus must realize that following him means living as a stranger in the world. Because of a a choice for Jesus is a choice to rejected by many in the world. Many will not uh, follow Jesus and will reject his disciple to be his disciple due to the fact that they love the world more than they love God. So the first individual is challenged. Is your commitment to me, to follow me, willing to sacrifice everything for me? Number two, verse 59, Jesus then appears to turn and states to another one in a command, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He appears to have been the eldest son that Jesus is speaking to, and his responsibility was to attend to the affairs of his family prior to going off and doing anything else. Many scholars, and I do agree with them, do not believe that the father at this moment has died, but that the death of the father was still future. We don't know if it was immediate or still way in the future. But this young man is saying to Jesus that, no, I must tend to these things before I follow you. And Jesus replies to him, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The second pillar of commitment must be obedience. Jesus looked at this man, the only one of the three that he calls, and says, follow me. It was a command. It means drop everything and follow me. Oh, Lord, I can't. I've still got all this that I yet have to do. I have all these personal responsibilities that are are, are meant for me to uh, deal with and tend to. And he says, let the dead deal with those things. And I agree with those who believe that he's referring to those who are spiritually dead. Let those who are spiritually dead deal with those things. But we who are alive must be obedient to Jesus, regardless. This wasn't a bad thing that he wanted to do. But he wasn't being obedient to what God has asked him to do. Well, how do I know what God is asking me to do? He gave you his word. And if God says do it, I would therefore believe it and do it. And allow yourself to cultivate a heart of obedience to the commands and the instructions of God's word. If we tend to gloss over those commands and instructions, and like many, unfortunately, they'll go through the Bible and they'll be reading something and they'll come to a passage that says, you know, thou shall not gossip and and so forth. And they'll say, oh boy, I've got a text so-and-so. I think God's trying to speak to them. Listen, I'm going to... I, I really believe I'm, I'm meant to text this to that person because I think God wants them to hear it. I, I'm going to call a couple of my friends and ask me if they feel I should send this verse to so-and-so. 
Listen, I feel that so-and-so is a gossip. How do you feel about it? Oh, you feel the same way. How, how does he, oh, your husband does too. Oh, and his uncle. And his brother from his mother's side, second nephew. Oh, my goodness. I was really hearing from the Lord this morning. Oh, gossip is such an evil sin, isn't it? I know. Really? They did that too? Oh, I've, I've got a call. Hold on, I've got to make another call. I'll call you back. You know, our sin always looks worse on someone else, doesn't it? And yet, God says, no, I want you to be obedient to what I say. Don't try to hang it around someone else's. You look at yourself first and foremost. And apply it to your heart. And ask the Lord to give you the strength and the grace of the power of the Spirit to be obedient to what He has asked you to do. Because often in that obedience, it's coupled with the first one, sacrifice. For my obedience to Christ is going to cause me to sacrifice in this area. This is difficult for me. God, give me the grace to do so. God, give me the grace to do so. Don't follow me later. Follow me now you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The second one is obedience. Number three, 61. Yet another said, well, I will follow you, Lord, but... Oh, there it is. Those three-letter words always come to bite you in the butt, don't they? Placing a condition on it. Trying to come to an agreement with God. God, I will follow you. Jesus, I will follow you, but... But, you know, wait a minute. Let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You're not ready. You're not prepared. Our commitment to Jesus must be the priority in our life. Not a priority. The priority in our life. We cannot be double-minded, which is illustrated for us there in the uh, picture of a farmer who is moving behind a plow. Obviously, the oxen would be pulling the plow and uh, moving forward, and they're making furrows in the land and so forth. If he were to look backwards, he wouldn't know where he is going. And the furrow would be all crooked and be useless for planting. And it would be a waste of the land because where straight furrows will give you uh, the optimal amount of area to plant, furrows that are created like this are irresponsible because you aren't using the land fully and properly. And so he says, if you're going to commit to me, this must be a priority. And I use the word preeminence in conjunction with this because I believe that's what Paul was articulating. That God isn't a priority in my life. He is the priority in my life. Because every other priority that I have, which would be under heaven here on this earth, will be determined by my main priority, my relationship with God. I cannot be the husband that God has called me to be if I'm not going to walk in the Spirit and deny the lusts of the flesh. 
I can't be the father to my daughter unless I am growing in the grace and the knowledge and the wisdom of God that I may train her up in that same way. I certainly cannot be your pastor if I am not first cultivating my relationship with God that I may minister to you and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Jesus isn't a priority. He is the priority in our life. And people today need to understand that. Yes, we are overwhelmed by different uh, aspects of life pulling us in multiple directions. And if you want to get a handle on that, first and foremost, take a step back and ask yourself as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have I made Christ preeminent in my life? I like to say it this way. There's only room for one on the throne of your heart. Either you're sitting there or he is. You're not sharing that seat with him. He's not sitting there and you're sitting on his lap. He is reigning from your heart. Again, Paul stated it this way. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And every responsibility, every other priority is then placed within the context of that preeminence of Christ. Well, that sounds really radical to me. That sounds, yeah, that sounds overwhelming and too much for me. Listen to the words of Jesus, and we're going to look at this in just a minute, but I want to have this already in your mind before we come to this text. Listen to what Jesus said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus just meant that for them back then. That's not, that's not a reality today. Oh, really? Because I will tell you, you can easily see within the epistles of the New Testament this thought. What did Jesus mean by the word hate? It is a play on words. It means to love less or to hate in comparison to your love for God. And what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This young man, we don't know how old he was, wasn't ready to do this. Him looking at his family, Jesus knew undoubtedly that he would not return to following him but he would stay there with his family. Tom Constable, one of my favorite professors, wrote in his notes concerning this passage, he said, Discipleship involves hard work and sacrifice similar to plowing. A farmer who does not concentrate on his plowing is not fit to be a farmer. Likewise, a disciple who allows his life to be distracted Uh, and from his duties as his disciple, is also unfit as the farmer for the kingdom of God. The disciple of Jesus must continue to follow him faithfully and allow Christ to reign preeminently within the individual's heart. Now, I'd like like to show you something, if I may, in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. 
When Jesus laid these things out and the Gospels were written, Paul the Apostle, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, was responsible for taking these ideas into the Gentile world who really had no understanding of who God, Yahweh, was. And of course, who Jesus was. So Paul's uh, job was to explain to them who Jesus was in a manner in which they could understand it, not having the history like the Jewish people had of their incredibly radical in our world today with the modern distractions that we have and the multiple commitments and responsibilities that we carry. A statement like this may really cause us trouble and we may consider that it was only for the Jewish people at that time during the time of Jesus. But notice what Paul writes here to the Philippian church. Again, a church of Gentiles like you and I who are being instructed for the first time in their Christian faith and who are being uh, uh, taught the things of Christ. Notice with me what Paul writes beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Now let me back up for just a minute. Paul is not saying that he has arrived to the state of perfection in which Christ has uh, instructed He realizes that he's a work in progress. Verse 12, let's back up one if we may. Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. That's my goal, to be all who Christ wants me to be. That's what he is saying there. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, meaning all that Christ has done for me, it is only my reasonable response to be all that he desires me to be. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't arrived there yet. But one thing I do, notice what he does. In his desire to obtain all that God has for him and become the man of God that God desires Paul to become, notice his very first um, principle in which he bases this pursuit upon. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Notice what he says there. The only way I can move forward is by letting go of the past. The only way I can become the man of God that God wants me to become is to let go of the past. How similar is that to Jesus saying, you can't put your hand on the plow and look backwards and follow me. you got to look forward and look look where you're going and see what the goal is and see where you're meant to be led, etc. How often are we told that we are mere products of our past. Who we are today is defined and our identity is derived from our past. Well, God says this, that when you come to me, I erase the past. And I no longer have to live in the bondages thereof. 
I can be victorious. I can move forward. I can go and become the man of God that God wants me to be because he has released me from these things. But Paul made it the point. Now, I want to just share with you quickly, if I may, Paul persecuted Christians before coming to Christ. He put them in jail. He had them killed. Think about that weighing on his conscience constantly as he tried to move forward in his new Christian life. How can I do this, God? Because all I remember are the faces of those individuals that I persecuted that were simply following you. And now I am doing the same. Lord, I, I can't move forward but I, because I'm a hypocrite. And God says, no, move forward. I have forgiven you. Move forward. And as a result, Jesus here, I believe, laid for this young man that preeminence and priority is needed if we are going to truly follow Christ as he would have us to follow him. Sacrifice, obedience, priority or preeminence. Tom Constable went on then to conclude. He says these things are hard sayings. Clarify the demands of discipleship. Jesus' followers must be willing to share in the homelessness to place participation in God's program above the claims that family and duty impose upon them and persevere within their calling. Now, I want to demonstrate to you that we are not um, embellishing what Jesus is saying. We are not um, creating a false understanding of what Jesus is saying. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 14. Let's jump ahead five chapters. And I want to read this in closing because we're going to look at it in detail once we get there. But in everything we have just discussed, I want to allow these words to hang in the air and permeate your heart and in your mind. Notice what he says here beginning in verse 25 of chapter 14 of Luke's gospel. And let us begin by asking ourselves, did we hear our did we hear him right? Do we interpret what he said to those three people accurately? Notice what he says here. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother, his wife and his children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who uh, finish, all who see it will begin to mock, saying, "This man begun to build and was not able to finish." Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, and he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all, that he has cannot be my disciple. 